fun fact, when I was in the eighth grade, I was exactly the same height I am now, which is like 5'8", which made me the tallest kid. There was one guy actually in our class who was taller than I was, but that was it. I was the second tallest kid in the class. So everyone took one look at me and was like, you look like you can play basketball. Appearances can be deceiving. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's show. If you remember a few weeks ago, we did an episode of a movie with Rosie Perez that I just really didn't love, and I felt like Turnabout was fair play. So today's episode will focus on another Rosie Perez movie, this time that Carla's not a huge fan of, White Men Can't Jump. Yeah, I wish that I liked sports movies more, but I just, I don't like sports in general. I think they're super boring, and this is a very sports-heavy movie. Although there's there's lots of fun money stuff going on. There's lots Carla, of stuff outside the sports world. If you watch the trailer for this film, you know, the movie title White Men Can't Jump, it implies there's probably some race uh, evolution themes in the movie. Um, the tagline, I think, in the trailer said, it's not about black, it's not about white, it's about green. <laughs> yeah. So the, the movie producers, you know, they knew when they were putting this out 30 years ago, and that's part of the reason for doing this too. It's got a little bit of resurgence right now. I think ESPN did a recent presentation about about the movie since it was hitting its 30-year anniversary for, you know, debuting in theaters. Um, but when they put this together, surely they knew that it would make a great pennies and popcorn several decades later because it's a movie about money with a whole lot of other themes below the surface. It does have a lot of money stuff, which makes for a fun pennies and popcorn episode. And yeah, I'm a thousand percent sure that that's what they were thinking when you and I were like, well, we, we would have been about eight years old when, when this came out in 1992. Uh, yes, I did not see it in theaters. I don't think that this would have been a good choice for me at that age. Well, so that that's a good segue into a, a language warning. There is some, some pretty legit language in this episode. We curse ourselves, but... This is kind of like on a different level. There's some some uh, fairly intense curse words. It's not like our eight mile episode bad, but there's yeah, that's true. I think, it's not I quite that bad. There's a few heated moments between characters, and they don't sugarcoat their language. Yeah, that's true. But there's a little more cursing than this. Then in this sweet love story, it could happen to you. I prefer it could happen to you to this film, but Rosie Perez is is really great in both movies. And I will say, I really like her character a lot better in this movie than I do in It Could Happen <laughs> to You. She's actually pretty likable and like the sensible down-to-earth one in this movie, more or less. Well, I like the movie because of Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson. I thought they both did a great job. Um, when they were casting this movie, so the director, this wasn't his first go-around with sports movies, right? He had done uh, Bull Durham before this, so he knew his way around a sports-themed you know, production. Uh, his tryout process included testing the different actors against reasonable athletes to see how they would perform because they needed to look realistic. They had them run through like a training camp at the beginning. So they, they had like a, a brief period where both Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes and I don't know if any of the other characters who had minor roles also had to go through these boot camps, but they, they made sure that people could at least ball or look like they could as part of the show. And then on set, they had uh, Bob Lanier, the Pistons Hall of Famer. He came and said, these guys are both legitimately talented basketball players. He, in his opinion, they'd risen to the level of talent uh, of being able to play uh, like a Division II basketball program. So a Division II 
collegiate level athlete, which is saying something. That, that's that's really pretty good. He did say that Woody Harrelson had the slight edge over Wesley Snipes in terms of overall ability. Interesting. Yeah, they definitely played basketball much better than I could. Fun fact, when I was in the eighth grade, I was exactly the same height I am now, which is like 5'8", which made me the tallest kid. There was one guy actually in our class who was taller than I was, but that was it. I was the second tallest kid in the class. So everyone took one look at me and was like, you look like you can play basketball. Appearances can be deceiving. I could not play basketball, cannot play basketball, never could play basketball. It was like the worst sports experience of my life was being forced onto the basketball team in eighth grade. So what basketball movie from your adolescence do you think inspired you the most? Was it The Air Up There? White Men Can't Jump? Literally none of them. This might be the only basketball movie you're I've ever seen. you more don't... of an Air Bud fan? <laughs> I do remember that there was a movie called Air Bud, and I love dogs. Space so... Jam? No? I'm Okay, okay. I think I did see Space Jam. I think I saw that. But I'm just so not a sports person. Like, they basically had to grab me by the hair and pull me out onto the court, kicking and screaming to get me to play on that team. It was not pretty. Well, that's too bad. Uh, <laughs> well, White Men Can't Jump, uh, they're actually in talks for making a sequel. I saw that. Well, like a remake, I think. So, yeah, it's supposed to be coming out. They've cast the guy who's supposed to take Wesley Snipes' role. So, yeah, apparently that's it's actually happening. Well, there you go. Hopefully we get some more entertainment here in the in the 2020s. So I have a couple other fun facts about the movie. Okay. Did you know that there was a video game based on White Men Can't Jump? Uh, I did not. They play a lot of two-on-two in the movie NBA Jam. I do, <laughs> So I think it was literally called White Man Can't Jump. I'm oh, not, wow, I'm okay. Not, I'm not 100% sure. Don't <laughs> quote me on that. What I do know is that it came out on the Atari Jaguar console system. So we're talking back in the day. I mean, this is 92. Weren't, wasn't Nintendo out by then? It was, but I guess Atari was still like hanging on by its fingernails. So we actually had an Atari system, and I had to look this up and try to figure out which one it was. I'm pretty sure it was the Atari 7800, which I also Googled to see if it had like skyrocketed in value and my family should dig through their attic and try to find it. But it's not going for that much. You could maybe get like a hundred bucks for it, maybe like one fifty to two hundred if you have all the controllers and everything's in mint condition, which I can almost guarantee would not be the situation for my family. But yeah, we we played with our toys to the bitter end. I am generally a fan of the Atari systems, and I have very fond memories of the Atari seventy eight hundred. So maybe the Atari Jaguar was pretty awesome too. I don't know. So my last fun fact: Did you know that Stanley Kubrick? The famed director was a huge fan of this movie and listed it in several interviews as one of his all-time favorite films. Surely that's a joke, right? No, it wasn't. He listed like a few kind of kooky, off-the-wall comedies as among his favorites. I think other things on his list were like The Godfather, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, pretty hard-hitting, serious dramas in general. But he also threw in a few wacky comedies and White Man Can't Jump was one of them. So there you go. Doesn't exactly feel like Eyes Wide Shut or 2001 A Space Odyssey. Doesn't feel like a Kubrick film at all, but he liked it. So. Well, Carla, it sounds like you're in the minority if you're not a huge fan. I guess so. Maybe Stanley Kubrick and I would not have gotten along super well. Although I probably could have told you that after watching A Clockwork Orange that he and I weren't going to be best pals. Fair enough. 
<laughs> so for those of you who haven't seen the movie Whiteman Can't Jump in a while, we'll give you a bit of a plot recap. The story centers around Billy Hoyle. He is a basketball player. He and his girlfriend, Gloria, are in a bit of a pickle. They have the Stookie brothers. Is that right? I'm never clear on whether it's Stooky with a K or Stooky with a G, but in any event, it's one of those two. There's this, those brothers, the Stooky brothers are like a mobster pair who are after them. They wanted Billy to, to lose a basketball game and uh, he didn't and he he owed them a bunch of money as a result of their losses. And they're on the run trying to hide from him. They've gone all around the country and they've made it to Southern California. So he's a pretty talented basketball player and he goes around the country hustling. He tries to get on the basketball courts and make some money off of that. When he's in Southern California, he runs into Wesley Snipes' character, Sydney. Sydney's playing with a bunch of his buddies and he is quite the talker. He's a very confident ball player and a pretty skilled one as well. And of course, they have a little bit of a showdown and Woody Harrelson, Billy, upstages him and takes a little bit of his money. They decide to team up together and go hustle some other folks in an effort to make some money on their own. And uh, the story just kind of follows from there. There's just a lot of trials and tribulations uh, with Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes trying to succeed on the court and in life. Yeah, and the story also focuses quite a bit on the relationship between Billy and his girlfriend, Gloria, played by Rosie Perez. And there's a lot of tension in that relationship, largely because of money. So Woody Harrelson, the character Billy, he is gambling on the courts. And Rosie Perez really wants them to be saving up for the future, trying to build a better life together. And she's not a huge fan of him going out and like frittering all this money away. So that is a, a key part of the tension. Another important plot point to note is that the character Gloria is obsessed with getting on to the TV show Jeopardy. She thinks that that is going to be her pathway to fame and fortune. So why don't we go ahead and jump right into our first clip and take a listen to an interaction between Billy and Gloria. Jeopardy call yet? Mm-mm, not yet. But you know something? I'm going to need a nice dress because when they call, you got to be ready to go. Oh, I did the books of the Old Testament. You want to hear them backwards? No. It's Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Honey, and Zep- please. Oh, and I did famous women and foods that start with the letter Q. You couldn't possibly imagine how many foods are out there that actually start with the letter Q. Honey, will you please shut up? What's wrong with you? I lost the money. Oh, Jesus, Billy. Not again. How much? Most of it. Roughly all of it. Billy, you lost all our fucking money? Shit, Billy! Jesus, man! $1,700, Billy! We were on our way to 8000 So, yeah, uh, Gloria is studying to be on Jeopardy here, and it's pretty funny, her rattling off the new trivia that she's learned. I think this is actually a reasonable thing for her to be doing, if she really wants to be on Jeopardy. Fun fact, so we intend for this episode to air on... Wednesday, April the 27th with us. On that same day, a friend of mine from high school, Ben Shaw, will be on Jeopardy. He's got a tough road ahead of him. Uh, going into Monday's episode this week, there's a 14-time champion that that if she wins on Monday and Tuesday, he'll have to face on Wednesday. So I don't know what his chances are there. Uh, hopefully she stumbles against a lesser opponent and he has a more clean pathway. Ben, we're rooting for you. Yeah, we're really, really excited to watch the episode. I don't know him super well, but we went to his wedding in California a number of years ago, and 
I'm really, really excited to, to see someone we know on Jeopardy. He's a super smart guy, so I hope he can take down the current champ and have a nice fun run on Jeopardy. I don't know that he's been studying an almanac or all these random books that... <laughs> How many foods that start with the letter Q do you think he can name? Ooh. I mean, that's clearly your pathway to winning Jeopardy, right? That's... So it's funny, right? Because, you know, spoiler alert here for the rest of the episode, she does get on Jeopardy and there is a category foods with the letter Q that comes up, which yeah. is just hilarious. Books of the Old Testament is also a category <laughs> for her. Yeah. It sets her up very well for victory. But what's also funny is I think in 1997, there was an actual Jeopardy category, foods with the letter Q. <laughs> I don't know if they did that just as a play on what they did because Alex Trebek had a guest starring spot on, on White Men Can't Jump. He yeah. was really there. It wasn't like a fake Jeopardy sort of setup. So, no, anyway. it was the real deal. Yeah. But, so Ben Shaw is a really smart guy. Is that all it takes to be good at Jeopardy or what else do you need to be successful? Well, I'd say there's a few skills you have to have in order to be a talented Jeopardy contestant. The first, like the baseline skill is you have to be really knowledgeable at trivia. Um, that's important, but everybody who goes on the show is pretty good at trivia, right? That's not, that. that's just enough to get you on the show. That's not enough to make you successful. When you're on the show, it's really all about buzzer and game management. So a lot of times you might think that the right strategy is as soon as you know an answer to start like buzzing in and clicking the buzzer on the show. That's not how it actually works. You're locked out. When you press the buzzer, if you try to put it in before the light has changed, saying that the host is done reading the question, there's a lot of timing involved. And at some point they unlock it and all the contestants are able to buzz in then. And so being really skilled at reading how the person who's managing the buzzers is interpreting the finish line of the question when the host is, is done reading it is actually a, just as crucial a skill as having the trivia knowledge. The other thing you have to do is know when you know the answer before you actually know the answer. I listened to a really interesting podcast with Ken Jennings. It was a People I Mostly Admire podcast uh, with the, part of the Freakonomics family. And, and Ken was on it and he talked about how a lot of times you, you just have to know that you know the answer even if you haven't currently recalled it because it's a race to get in as soon as it's open, which is crazy, right? You just have to know yourself and your skills and strengths well, well enough to know, can I deduce this answer while I'm starting to say, who is Johnny Carson? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the, there's the buzzer management, and there's also the game management, right? Your goal. So Ben, if you're listening to this, it's too late because you've already recorded your episodes, I'm sure. But you got to be aggressive on those daily doubles if you're going after a really talented champion, right? There's a lot of different information that, that's out there, and the game can be kind of random, Final Jeopardy really determines the victor. Whoever's in the lead has a great chance of keeping it, but not everybody knows the same stuff, and you may miss a more difficult question there. When you have the opportunity to bet a whole lot more in the daily doubles, that's how James Holtzauer, the very successful Jeopardy guy who, who was a professional gambler, made so much money on the show, he really took advantage of the daily doubles, knowing that his trivia skills were strong and that by leveraging uh, his money and his, his, his advantage early in the game, he could turn that into a runaway victory virtually every time and set himself up for a really strong payday at the end. So betting correctly, both in Final Jeopardy and any daily doubles you have the chance to is important. And then there's other strategies that people employ trying to keep other contestants off their game. If you think back to the Jeopardy that people would have played from our childhood, it would have been you start at the 
the, the cheapest level question and you just kind of make your way down a category unless you're really stumbling. Maybe you switch over to a new category. But that was the way that seemingly everybody played for a long time. I believe the, the, they encourage you to play that way because it's easier for the viewers at home. But it's not ideal for the players, right? There are times where they, they want to hunt for daily doubles at certain points of the game. You want to keep your opponent off their toes. You want to, If you know where you're going, you can get in the right headspace for the question that they're going to be asking instead of giving your opponents the same open window for, oh, every question is going to follow the same sort of theme all in a row. It depends on who you are and your, your style. You can bounce around. So there you go. How to succeed at Jeopardy 101. But you really fundamentally have to know a whole bunch of stuff. You should play a bunch of trivia games. You should watch Jeopardy. You should be in a bunch of like quiz bowl things. Our friend Ben, you know, he, he was a big part of taking our high school's science bowl team to nationals when, when we were seniors. So you know, he's a long history of being involved in, in trivia type competitions. But I think you should flex those muscles pretty regularly if you want to be good at Jeopardy. And I think it takes a lot of learning. What she's doing, what Gloria's doing, reading about stuff that she doesn't know about is kind of important. There are topics, if you know you have blind spots, right? You know what Jeopardy is going to ask about in general. If you watch the show pretty regularly, you know the different topics and which ones you don't know much about. So if I were going to go on the show, I would know that my skills in opera are like zero. Shakespeare. Shakespeare's pretty limited. My exposure to uh, artists, art and artists, is is not good enough to, to really thrive. And I would need to pick up, I need to bone up on that sort of thing. So what you're telling me is you're totally uncultured. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Hopefully it's just a show of sports categories. <laughs> so that is the area where I would fail miserably. Like unless they asked me, what sport did Joe Montana play? I would not, I would not do well in Jeopardy sports. So yeah, it's definitely a lot about knowing your strengths and weaknesses and where you need to to shore up those weaknesses for sure. So what about the clothing that she's talking about? Does she need to go out and buy some really expensive dress to to appear in Jeopardy? No, that's ridiculous. Uh, What she does need is multiple sets of clothing. So when you go on the show, they record Jeopardy five episodes a day, right? They, They record a week of Jeopardy in a day. And typically they'll record a couple of weeks in a week. So it'll be like two episode, two weeks worth of episodes that they'll record in studio within a week. So if you're invited to be on the show, you have to bring changes of clothing with you because if you're the champion, you get to appear on the next day's show and you need to have a clean change of clothes to, to bring with yeah, you. Yeah, like 30, 45 minutes later. <laughs> yeah, there's no time yeah. for you to go on a shopping spree and, and go pick up another dress. But the other thing is it doesn't need to be fancy at all. Like nobody cares. Well, I mean, I sympathize. I would not want to go on Jeopardy as a contestant without wearing something that I felt really good in and that I I knew looked good. I wouldn't want to show up in like a ratty old t-shirt or something that just didn't fit well. So I, I sympathize with no, her you, you, wanting you to look, look nice. You should look nice, but there's also going to be a makeup artist who's going to help you look your best. And ultimately, you just need something that fits reasonably well and looks okay. It doesn't need to be some fancy dress. You don't need to yeah. look like you're going to the prom or something. No, that's clearly true. In fact, if you showed up looking like you were going to the prom, the internet would probably rip you to shreds. But yeah, you just want to look like a you know nice, presentable, clean, scrubbed person. So she definitely doesn't need to go out and spend a bunch of money on some designer dress. I think that's that's not a good use of their resources, especially given how much they are struggling with their finances. And the fact that she doesn't even know she's going to be on the show yet. So going out and spending a lot of money in the hopes that she'll eventually be on the show is completely nuts. That's a very bad use of their resources. So yeah, Jeopardy, 
that's what she's aspiring to be. Uh, but Billy, he's a basketball hustler, and he lost $1,700 in a game that he and uh, Sydney got together in. So how do they get here? Billy hustled Sydney, took some money off of him, and Sydney's like, hey, I have an idea. This guy's talented. He looks like he can't play. He's he's the total sucker kind of partner to, to hustle somebody with, right? People think he's not very good because he doesn't look particularly athletic, and he's not dressed very well at all. Uh, so they partner up and they have this scheme where Woody Harrelson, Billy shows up on the court and Wesley Snipes is getting into it with somebody and he suggests they play a game for money. And he says, I'll play with anybody here. You pick my teammate. I don't care. Anybody here. You, the worst person here, you pick them. I'll play with them. And of course the scheme is that Woody Harrelson, Billy Hoyle, it looks like he's the worst player out there. He's there with a the ball. He looks like he's ready to play, but that he's going to be terrible. And so, of course, the opponent is going to pick Billy to be Sydney's partner. They do this successfully once, and they win. The $1,700 loss is a second time when they go to another court. They kind of take those winnings and play again, except this time Sydney double-crosses Billy and, in fact, sets up a game where he's playing for – I think he's betting like $1,700 of his money for versus like 1150 or uh, like it's, it's, it's less. It's not like an even yeah. number. Like, I don't know why anybody would go take that bet with an unknown partner. That's ridiculous. But nevertheless, he gets double crossed and the money's taken. What I want to talk about is two things. One, does this scheme work? And two, the ethics of this double cross and this like hustling the hustler kind of thing. Because the scheme picked this random dude and expected to be Woody Harrelson every time. Like, surely there could be somebody worse there. Like, Yeah. Well, <laughs> in fact, in a couple of the scenes that we see, there are some guys standing around the court who look like they're very out of shape or like guys who are super, super scrawny and uncoordinated looking. And somehow they're always picking Woody Harrelson every single time. I mean, I get that he's white and the title of the movie is White Men Can't Jump. So they look at the white guy and think he's not going to be able to play super well. But like, come on, he Woody Harrelson looks like a fairly athletic dude. And you set him next to, you know, this lineup of other characters that we see on some of these courts. And it does not seem believable to me that they're picking Woody Harrelson reliably every time. Yeah, Woody is fronting the money is what it seems like in these schemes. And he could totally just lose all of his money if... Wesley Snipes isn't is impaired with them. Yeah. There's like the chubby guy who holds the money in one of these, and he's just so excited to be holding that much money. He, he totally could have been picked as as Sydney's partner, and they definitely. I mean, he lost anyway that time. He was throwing the game, but you know, the, it seems like a crazy scheme to me. Totally unlikely to work. Yeah, but. I mean, there's always a lot of risk anytime you're hustling somebody else, right? There's risk to your personal safety that the person you're hustling is going to figure out what's going on and get really mad at you and beat you up. Um, there's there's a lot of risk involved in hustling, but it does seem like they're taking it to an extra unnecessarily risky place by adding this element of, like, you pick the dude. All right, let's talk about the ethics. So, I mean, there's there's nothing really ethical about hustling, period, right? You're taking some steps that indicate that you are a beginner, that you're really bad, that you just are not going to be a very good opponent to this person. And then, oops, turned out, turns out I've played this game every day of my life and I'm actually really awesome at it. 
and I'm going to completely kick your ass at it. I mean, what's ethical about that? Like you should, if you want to engage in a contest with somebody, you should show up and say like, this is who I am. I'm not making any representations about how good I am or I am not, but let's play the game. Like what, why, why the deceit? I mean, I, I get it. Of course, the deceit is there because you want to make money, but there's nothing ethical about it. It's, it's dishonest. You are playing your opponent's greed against them. I mean, aren't both of you being a little bit dishonest? No, I don't think your opponent is being dishonest. I mean, aren't they trying to take advantage of your amateur status, your, your inability to play? Well, not unless they're representing themselves to be amateurs as well. No, I don't think so. Well, so your opponent, when you're hustling them, like like they were trying to do, they were excited to pair Wesley Snipes with somebody absolutely terrible. Yeah, but and he invited that. That's true. Yeah. I mean, unless you are someone who is like so honorable that you flat out refuse to play anyone for money who's not at your level, like that, that's kind of a crazy thing. First of all, how would you know that for sure? Unless you're talking about something like chess where you have very specific rankings and you can tell how good somebody is or is not. Like on a basketball court, there's no way of knowing how good somebody will or won't be. I mean, look at me. They put me on the basketball team because they thought I was going to be good just because I was tall. And you couldn't even dunk. I couldn't do anything. I basically, I couldn't dribble. Like I, I could barely hold the thing. You could turn the ball over. Well, <laughs> that's true. That's true. I was good at that. Yeah, well, except for the fact that I didn't get to play at all, so I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that ever happened. All right, so let's move past the ethics of basic hustling and let's go to this double cross here. That's like a whole nother level of wrong, right? Yeah, no, I think that's completely terrible. What Wesley Snipes did. I mean, I'm sure he justified it in his head that you know Woody Harrelson hustled me first. Now I'm just gonna hustle him back. But it seems like a completely different scenario. First of all, it's all Billy's money at stake in this hustle where he double crosses him. So he's basically just flat out robbing him. He's completely throwing the game. I mean, I think throwing a game is far worse than pretending to be worse than you are and then letting your true flag fly. Yeah, I agree. All right, so let's progress forward a little bit in the movie. So Billy and Sydney, they have this big falling out over the fact that they lost this game, they lost this money, the $1,700 were gone, and Gloria figures it out that, hang on a minute, you've been double-crossed. They go back to Sydney's place, discover that he's there with the people who just beat him, and like, there's clearly some shenanigans going on. So the wives get together, the wives and girlfriends, uh, Gloria and Sydney's wife, and they decide that the two of them can play very effectively together, and there's this big tournament coming up. There's a two-on-two tournament with a $5,000 purse. It's being sponsored by some company. And they decide that the right thing to do is for the, these two guys to get it together and play as teammates in this because they can likely win. And so reluctantly, they get together, they play, and they pull it off. Congrats, they win the money. And of course, Wesley Snipes is needling Woody Harrelson about the way that he plays the whole time because Wesley Snipes is a talker. That's his character. He's, he's a trash talker, and he's giving him a hard time about the fact that he never dunks the ball because he simply can't. And this really gets under Woody's skin, and he makes some pretty dumb decisions based on it. Look, I bet my half of the five grand against your half of the five grand that I could stuff it. I mean, wait, hold on, hold on. Look, Billy, you just won it. Let me give you some words of advice. Take some of that money 
and go and buy your girl a real pretty dress, okay? Just in case she gets on that damn game show. I mean, you're either stupid or you're dangerous, man. And you can't be stupid because stupid people know they can't push my buttons and piss me off. So you, you must be dangerous. To who? To yourself. Look, man, I'm taking you home. So I think Wesley Snipes is is trying to be a really good friend here, right? They've they've mended their fences. They you know got together and overcame the fact that they have each hustled each other, and they went and they won this huge sum of money, five thousand dollars, together. So now Woody Harrelson is just being such a dope, and he wants to go immediately gamble that money that they just won, which we know they really need because they've got these. Stooky brothers chasing them down. Yeah, you're right. Woody, I'm sorry, Wesley, Sydney, he's trying to be a good friend, although ultimately he allows him to do the bet. He goes for it. Fun story. So in the filming of the movie, right, the the final scene of the movie, uh, the final basketball scene has uh, Woody Harrelson taking an alley-oop and bringing it home, you know, slamming it down. And Woody Harrelson is trying to get in shape to do this on set to really do it on a standard 10 foot goal. And in a movie like this, no surprise, the characters, the actors, they were betting on random things on the set because they're playing basketball all the time and trying to do all these athletic feats. And they're just betting who can do what and who's going to do it successfully and who won't. And so they need him to be able to dunk for this scene. And he'd been wearing these goofy shoes, these like strength training shoes. I'm pretty sure George Costanza wore something pretty similar to that on an episode (laughs) of Seinfeld. Um, anyway, uh, he'd been wearing these shoes, trying to build up his calf muscles, get in a position to where he could reliably go dunk the ball. And they went and they filmed a take and he wasn't close. And he's like, I, guys, I could do it. I've done it before. I could do it. He's going to go back to the studio. He's like, Woody Harrelson is totally Billy Hoyle like <laughs> in the real world. And he goes back to his, his, his trailer and the director, he goes and lowers the height of the goal down to nine and a half feet because Woody Harrelson just couldn't get up high enough. Without telling him? Without telling him. He's in his trailer. He doesn't know. There's bets with other people. I think Wesley Snipes doesn't know this happens, but the, the guy, I think the guy, maybe it's the guy who played Raymond, who is an actual basketball player in real life. He goes and they lower the goal down six inches. They redo the scene. And of course, Woody Harrelson is able to dunk at that level. I mean, he's, he's not a terrible athlete, but getting up to 10 feet high is not, is no joke with the ball in your hand. So, I mean, I, I don't think I could dunk on an eight-foot rim. So (laughs) anyway, uh, he successfully does it on the nine-and-a-half-foot rim, but I don't think he knew for a very long time afterwards that somebody had made it a little bit easier for him to get the shot in. Ah, poor guy. I mean, it's just six inches. That doesn't seem like a huge deal, but yeah, that's that's a a tough card to get dealt to find out that they had to cheat for you. That's funny. Yeah. So... Uh, In the show, though, uh, bad news, Woody fails at the dunking, right? Yeah, he loses all $2,500 to his now, I guess, friend, uh, Sydney. And yeah, he has to go back home to Gloria and be like, oops, I did it again. I mean, it's just crazy that he's gambling this much money away. It really reminds me of the marshmallow experiment that they did. Pretty sure it was at Stanford in 1972, where they did this experiment where they had kids sit down, put a marshmallow in front of them, and they told them if you can wait like five or 10 minutes not to eat that marshmallow, we're gonna leave you in the room all alone with the marshmallow, but if you can manage to not eat it, when we come back in the room, we'll give you a second marshmallow. So you get to eat two instead of just one. 
And Woody Harrelson or Billy Hoyle would have eaten that marshmallow before they left the room. <laughs> yeah, he totally would have. <laughs> he totally would have. I always think the the marshmallow thing is kind of funny because there could be lots of good reasons to eat just one marshmallow instead of two, right? If you don't want watching your sugar intake or whatever. But obviously the general idea is they're they're trying to find find kids who have more willpower. And then they follow these kids for a really long time and they look at things like their SAT scores, their income later in life, their happiness later in life. I think they even looked at their BMIs, which is an interesting figure to, to look at. Although from everything that I have heard and read about BMIs recently, apparently they're pretty unreliable and kind of trash numbers that don't mean that much. But in any event, they looked at a bunch of statistics about these kids. And the original experiment was that, oh my gosh, it's amazing. These kids who have the willpower to wait for the second marshmallow tend to have way better outcomes in life. I do think the marshmallow experiment has since been a little bit debunked. They've tried to repeat it again and get similar results, and it hasn't been quite as impressive. And actually, I think they recently did a study where they figured out that it's more about the kids worrying what the teachers think of them than it is about wanting to wait for that second marshmallow. So it's more about how much the kids care about what other people think more than it is about their true willpower. Yeah, so it's measuring your how much you value the opinion of others versus your own willpower. Yeah, which I can certainly understand why that would also be correlated to more success, right? Sure. If you're worried about the the world's metric of success, you're probably striving harder to to achieve that. But there are a heck of a lot of really successful people in the world who have said, "Screw that. I don't want to follow this, you know, very specific get married have 2.5 kids work the same job until I'm 65 kind of standard path. And they've, they've done wonderful things in life. So I think it's an interesting take. I'm not sure the marshmallow experiment is actually all that valuable in the long run, but I do think it's a helpful kind of general tool to use to talk about. And I think poor Billy would fail any kind of marshmallow test absolutely miserably. He's someone who just cannot think long-term. He cannot think about what the consequences of his action are going to be. He's just so in the moment and in his head that that's all that matters to him. Yeah, there's no thought at all about the long-term ramifications of his decisions. He wins this money, right? He wins the tournament. He calls Gloria and tells her she's back at their place. She's set up a candlelit dinner to celebrate with the two of them. And a couple hours later, he finally gets home dejected after he lost the money, right? Like there's no long-term thinking whatsoever. So let's jump into our next clip where we hear how Gloria feels about his lack of long-term thinking and impulse control. Honey, lost the money. Want to run that by me one more time, Billy? It, uh, it happened again. It? 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 No! No, Billy! It? What, what the fuck is it? 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 There is no it! It is you! You happen again! Damn it, Billy! The money was mine to keep the both of us going till Jeopardy calls! Honey, Jeopardy ain't gonna call. When are you gonna fucking wake up? Jeopardy is gonna call, Billy. It is my destiny that I triumph magnificently on that show. <laughs> Man. You gotta love her confidence. Oh, she's got some good confidence there. But Billy, he 
I mean, he really is an addict. It's unfortunate. He's a talented basketball player, but he is effectively a gambling addict, right? Oh, I think so. 1000%. He just cannot help himself. Any chance that he has to put some money on the line, have a chance of winning more back in return and kind of like prove his honor in the process. It's just pure catnip to him. He absolutely cannot resist. So what should he do? I mean, I've been to a casino or two over the years and pretty much everyone I've ever been into, there are signs all over the place saying like, if you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call this hotline. I mean, should Gloria be helping him do that? She for sure should. And he obviously should be taking those steps too. I mean, it is a real addiction. It's not meaningfully different than any kind of like substance addiction. And there are treatment options that will help you with a gambling addiction, just like anything else. So sometimes, according to what I've read, medication can actually be really helpful because it's often an offshoot of things like depression or anxiety or ADD or ADHD. So treating the underlying conditions can be helpful to some folks. There's lots of talk therapy. You can go to rehab for for gambling addictions, having an accountability partner. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of really great treatment options and finding one that works well for you if you or someone you know is in that situation is so important. And I think as someone who is, you know, a family member of the gambling addict or a friend, you have to be supportive and try not to be judgmental and thinking, just stop, you know, like, what is the problem? It's not a chemical addiction. Just cut it out. Like, that, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I mean, there are actual strategies that you can employ besides just like a snap out of it kind of approach. Yeah, it's unfortunate. He is definitely an addict and they don't do a whole lot in this movie to to stop it. So Gloria is pissed. She wanted to take the share of the $2,500 that they won and live off of that until Jeopardy calls. But they're on the run from the Stoogie Stooky brothers and they're like moving constantly from hotel to hotel. I don't know if you are as broke as they are, if their approach to life is working out very well. Yeah, hotels are expensive, and I understand that they're on the run, and so they can't they can't stay in one place. But gosh, I don't know. It seems to me that they ought to just be relocating altogether if they have people who are trying to track them down. I would just move many, many states away. Well, that's what they did. That's what's interesting, right? He was a ball player in Louisiana, and he got in trouble. He's now, like, he talked about playing against people in Jersey at one point. He's made it all the way over to the West Coast. It's kind of surprising that these two mobsters, because it's not like they're part of a big mob crime family. It's it's the two guys. They're, instead of doing their other mob business, they're just chasing after Woody Harrelson. Yeah, that's a good point. It's probably not a very good return on investment for those guys. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, maybe they've literally run out of places to run. Like it's either getting, you know, some sort of legal status in another country or like that's it, they run out of places. But I don't know. The United States of America is a pretty big place. I'm sure they could find some place to go where they could just start over and, you know, get normal jobs and start saving towards a better future and building a better life together where they're not on the run. Yeah. Okay. So she wants it to tide him over till she gets on Jeopardy. I know Ben Shaw from my high school is going to be on Jeopardy. What are her odds of actually getting on the show? So it's, it's her destiny to triumph on the show. To triumph magnificently. It's, it's really hard to pin down 
an exact percentage of people who actually end up getting on the show. Jeopardy doesn't release a lot of figures about how many folks try out and how many get on. But I can tell you a little bit about the audition process. So to get on Jeopardy, you take a test. These days it's online. It's 50 questions. Jeopardy is kind of cagey about exactly how many you have to get right in order to move on to the next phase. But generally people seem to think that it's 35. That's a considered a passing score. So if you get this passing score somewhere in the neighborhood of 35, then you move on to the next qualifying round, which is like an in-person tryout. You are put like in a room with some other Jeopardy hopefuls, and they actually run through kind of a mock Jeopardy tournament, and they want to see how you do. Are you going to be good on camera? Do you speak in a nice, loud, clear, understandable voice? Are you super nervous? Are you Were you fidgety? cheating on the online test? Were you cheating on the online test? They just want to see how you can do. And then I do think they make you take another test when you're there in person. So after all of that, then I think you have to go home and wait for a while. And they gradually pick people out of this pool of folks that they've accumulated as potential contestants. And then you do. You just kind of like Gloria, you wait to get the call and see if you qualify or if they've picked you to be a contestant. Man, if you have gotten through those first few stages of the interview process, I can't imagine the stress you're under to go study then. You needed to be good at trivia to get to this point, but man, like the dividends of, you know, boning up on on your skills and areas that you were a little bit weak are huge. You have Mm -hmm. to just commit all of your free time to studying, right? Seemingly. Yeah, no, I would think so. If I were in that situation, I would be a maniac just studying all the time because there are examples of folks who have made just obscene amounts of money on on Jeopardy, right? Like genuine life-changing amounts of money into the millions of dollars. So you got to give yourself a shot at being that person, right? If you've already come that far, you would be trying so, so hard. Well, yeah. So Jeopardy, I believe their prize money in today's structure, if you get third place on your episode, you get $1,000. Second place gets $2,000. And then the winner gets whatever they won and the chance to go back tomorrow. Yep. Which is by far the most valuable piece of it, right? Right. So, you know, they don't pay for you to fly out or stay in a hotel or bring your fancy outfits with you to the show. Um, so that comes out of your $1,000 winnings. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, for the vast majority of people who go on Jeopardy, they lose money in the, in the process, right? Well, I don't know if they lose money, but they definitely don't come out ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. So... I mean, is this the kind of thing that you can hang your star on and think this is going to be my destiny as as Gloria thinks of it? I don't think so. So there are some like mega Jeopardy champions that have, you know, done really well in life and have become like pop culture sensations, right? Ken Jennings turned his success in the early 2000s on Jeopardy into being, at least for the moment, one of the hosts of Jeopardy. I don't know how long that'll last. They may change up their plans, but... Uh, that's been really cool for him. And he's made kind of a, a career off of his trivia skills and, and knowledge from that. Not many people do. And how many Ken Jennings are there out there who just didn't get the chance because that one day when they were on the show happened to be that random episode where they lost. B- before the early 2000s, you could only be a champion for five days in a row. And then they reset the deck and started with new contestants. Now you could be a Jeopardy champion until you lose. And there have been a number of 
five plus day champions over the years. But like I said, you could easily have the skills and ability to be one of those people and one, go up against a really talented opponent who's already a multi-day champion or two, like just have the categories not work out in your favor. You could, you could be in the lead by a sizable total uh, going into final jeopardy and get it wrong because it just wasn't a question you happen to know. And some random person who's way worse than you. And if you played a hundred games of jeopardy, you might win 90% of them against that person and some other random person. You can still lose that one and you just never know. It's her her skills, I'm sure, are great, but they're not sufficient to guarantee victory. Yeah, there's so, so much luck involved. If we could take it back to White Men Can't Jump, Gloria does get onto Jeopardy and she does well. All the stuff that she studied ends up being on the show and she wins uh, $14,100, I believe is what mm-hmm. her winning total was. Mm-hmm. And she gets some money and is excited to share it with with Billy. I want you to take 2,000 of, of my winnings. Okay? I think that's a bad idea. No, it's a good idea. I want you to go out and buy yourself some new clothes. I mean, not for me, you know. I like you the way you are and everything, but when you go out on those job interviews, you gotta look good. Job interviews? Yeah. I want you to aim high. Well, I, I, I want to aim high, but I'm just nervous about taking your money again because, you know, I'm afraid I might do something stupid. Take it. I trust you. Oh, Coria, not a good call. Not a good call at all. All right, so plot hole here. You don't get paid when you walk <laughs> off the Jeopardy set. It's not like they hand you a big wad of cash for your winnings Correct. or they give you a check that you can go take to the bank. Uh, first of all, they don't pay you until your episode airs, and I'm not sure it happens immediately after that either. No, according to what I read, it takes like three to five months for them to just make sure everything's good and you're like a fully legitimate person and that they're, yeah, they're actually able to pay the winnings to you. Yeah, so um, they play this off like this happened immediately, and then she's going to go record again the following week or something like that, and she's giving him some money. She definitely wouldn't have any of that cash. So, one, ridiculous. Two, should she give him the money? Like he, he's being pretty introspective here. I'm yeah. proud of, I'm proud of the growth from Billy. He understands that he has a problem and he might do something stupid. Uh, yeah. He's doing exactly what I was talking about, right? He's trying to put himself in a situation where he doesn't have that temptation. And then she just stupidly is like, no, no, don't worry about that. You got this. I mean, I think she just doesn't fully appreciate the fact that he really is an addict and that he is not going to make good use of this money. Well, she gives it to him to spend on clothes for an interview. $2,000 in 1992. Oh my gosh. Um, that doesn't sound like a good use of the money either. It's so much money for clothing. So 1992, if we fast forward to today, taking inflation into account, we're talking about roughly $4,100 in today's money. So, I mean, just think of all the clothing you could buy with $4,100. I fully acknowledge you and I kind of live under a rock when it comes to clothing. We just don't shop in like high-end stores. And I'm sure it would go fast if you went to certain places. But I also know there are other places to shop where it would go an extremely long way. And it just seems like such an insane use of money to me to spend all of that just on clothes and think that this is somehow going to be like your golden ticket into some awesome high-paying job. 
Yeah, I don't know what kind of job he's going to go interview for, but it's not like he has this great resume. Right. He actually he needs to spend some money on putting a resume together. He doesn't. I guess you could go find someone with a typewriter back in 1992. You could probably do it at the library. I mean, you could certainly do it at a library today. I imagine in 1992, they would have had some resources to help you with that as well. Well, anyway, his resume, whether it's on paper or not, is not going to be particularly strong for a lot of professional jobs. And so I'm wondering what kind of role he would be applying for where the quality of his suit is going to be substantially judged. He just needs to look professional and clean. Yeah, I mean, first of all, he should not be buying like an entire wardrobe for work until he actually lands a job, right? That's putting the cart before the horse to go out and buy your whole work wardrobe before you have any place to wear said wardrobe. That's absolutely nuts. But yeah, he just needs enough to get by with interviews. He could probably get away with just like a decent pair of khakis and a few button-up shirts, and that's it. Probably need some, a nicer pair of shoes and a belt. Yeah. A tie. I mean, what else What else are we talking about? He, the last thing he needs to do is like go to Armani and buy some fancy suits. Like that is, he's not going to walk into some job and have somebody look at him and be like, oh, is that a Prada suit? Come on in. Let's give you some work. That is not how job markets work. That is, they care about you. They care about your skills. What you are wearing takes a major backseat to those things. As long as you look clean and presentable, nobody's going to focus too much on your clothing. So if she is going to give him $2,000 for their long-term future, what what should he spend that money on? I mean, so we do know that he has some college education, right? Because he mentioned that he played basketball in college for a while. We don't have any idea how far he got, but I would take that money and put it towards education, some kind of license if he's not wanting to actually go back and finish out his bachelor's degree. But I would put it towards something productive, either education or like materials that you need to start some sort of a business, but just clothes, like what, what, that is not going to get you anywhere. It's just so silly to me. I mean, you could go buy like a pressure washer and start your own pressure washing business or like learn how to be a roofer and buy some roofing materials, the tools you need to do that and go be a roofer. Like there's so many other more valuable investments you could make than just a handful of suits. So Gloria says she wants him to aim high. I don't know what that means. Like, What does this mean for Billy Hoyle? I don't know. I mean, the only skill that we know he has is basketball. Yeah, should he be try to be like a coach somewhere? That he- seems like a great idea for him. I mean, he seems like a pretty personable guy. He might make a great coach. But yeah, I mean, he just needs to be focusing on building skills, making connections with people. Like clothes should be... The last thing on his list right now, he needs to be thinking about what he wants to do and taking more meaningful steps towards doing that besides just what he looks like. So Billy is worried that with this $2,000, he's going to do something stupid. And sure enough, Sydney meets up with him when he's out on the streets. I think he and uh, Billy and Gloria are out exercising. I think she's rollerblading. He might be on a bike or something. And they run into Sydney and he has an opportunity to do something stupid with the money. I gotta talk to you, man. Alone. Billy, you got some money? Yeah, I got a little dough. Why? Eddie the King, Farouk, and Doug Johnson are back. King and Duck? We can take them, man. Yeah, yeah we can take them. But yeah. it costs 2500 to get in. Dude, I got two grand, man. I just got two good, grand. Good, good, good. All right, let's do this. Hold on, hold on, hold on, man. 
You know something? I just I just got back together with Gloria. I don't know how she's gonna react to this. All right, enough man talk here. What's up? You know something, honey? There is a big game downtown. For money? No, no, no. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, a little. Billy, are you serious? Are you seriously thinking about playing with my money? Your money, honey? You gave it to me. I promised Sydney, honey. You promised me! I promised you and I promised him. I, I owe you and I owe him. I mean, I, I'll give you the winnings. I don't care about the money. Billy, I don't need the money. I don't want the money. Well, what do you want? I want you, you stupid son of a bitch! Wow. So he's got some conflicting promises that he made, but this seems pretty open and shut to me. If you have a long-term committed relationship with a partner... Pretty sure you have a responsibility to work out your financial things together. And maybe you have to tell Sydney, sorry. So, again, spoiler alert, but she ends up leaving him. Like, the end result of this is that she kind of gives him one last kiss and says goodbye, Billy. And that is it for her. She has very clearly closed that chapter of her life. And she's just not going to put herself in a position to continue to be disappointed by him anymore. And I think that's a really good decision for her to make. He just seems like someone who is not going to grow the way that he just very recently promised her that he would. You know, they they talked about him getting a job. They talked about turning their lives around. And he's just like at the first mention of something different than that, at the first temptation of him going back to the world of gambling, he's like, oh, forget about everything we just talked about. And I think for her, it's just too much. You almost can't spoil this movie because you know where it's going to go from the beginning. But yeah, they just can't get on the same page about what they want for their long-term success, which is a pretty important component in a relationship. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that they're particularly good for one another. I, he obviously has his gambling addiction and she's not really in a position to help him through that. I think she... I wouldn't say she encourages it, but she doesn't really discourage it. He he said, I'm going to do something dumb with this money. Don't give it to me. And she said, no, I trust you, which is not about trust. It's really about helping him through his problem, uh, which which she just wasn't willing to do. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure they're great for each other. But yeah, you got to be on the same page with your partner. You have an obligation to work together on that sort of stuff. And it's crazy to, to do literally anything else. That said... This game that they're going to play. (laughs) (laughs) I think they have a legitimate shot at beating them. And if your goal, you know, if your strategy here is to go use your basketball skills to make money, uh, you're going to have to put some money at risk. That's the way that these opportunities present themselves. Um, You know, at some point, it's, it's a reasonable play. I think they're good enough. And of course... The movie shows that they were good enough. They win. It wasn't like this was some crazy long shot victory that they had. They were a talented opponent and thought it was a reasonable wager. I think for me, what this whole scenario calls into question is if you are someone who has a dream to make a living in a risky way like this, when do you make the decision to hang it up and say, okay, I've put enough into this. I'm not going to spend my money on continuing to pony up and give myself another shot at this because this applies to so many different arenas of life, right? So take Gloria. She wants to be an actress. 
And what she hopes to do with her Jeopardy winnings is basically buy herself enough time to be able to go on a lot of auditions and hopefully get an acting gig and then have that be her long-term career. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's great. And she's going to have enough money to cover her expenses for a while where she can afford to take that risk and go put herself out there. I think that's awesome. But at some point, her money is going to get really low if she's not having the luck that she wants. And it's the same thing for any other kind of endeavor, right? Let's say you want to be a great chess player and make a a career out of playing chess or playing poker or any kind of sport or as a musician or as a writer, anything that requires a significant element of luck and a skill at an incredibly high level that it takes a long time to build. I mean, I think being a business owner, like if you want to start your own business, you have the same problem, right? You're going to, what business makes money on day one, right? It is a losing proposition at the beginning and you have a model and a plan that you think you'll be able to get to and execute and deliver upon and be able to have a profitable, healthy, successful, long-term business. And if that doesn't happen on the schedule that you anticipated, when do you pull a plug? So we obviously don't have like a magic panacea answer for everybody because everyone's situation is going to be a little bit different. But for me personally, I would want to pull the plug when I was down to having like a few months of expenses left in my coffers because I would want to give myself enough of a buffer to go find a more stable, well-paying job. And so many of those things that I was just referring to, you can pursue while you do have a full-time job. It's just a heck of a lot harder requires, you know, spending way more of your waking hours and some of maybe some of your what otherwise would you prefer to be sleeping hours too on this dream pursuit and basically have no free time. That's a really tough existence, but the alternatives are to either give up on the dream entirely or put yourself in a position where you're at serious risk of running out of money and being destitute and ultimately homeless, right? I mean, that is not impossible. Well, I'm glad that both Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes figured out that they had more to offer the world than just playing basketball and you know, decided to act in other films. Yeah, and I think that's <laughs> that's a good that's a good note to end on, right? Because just because you can't make it as an actor doesn't mean that you don't have some really awesome, fulfilling career ahead of you and a really great way to, you know, make an impact on the world and live a thoroughly enjoyable life. So I think putting all your eggs in one basket of any kind is never a good idea. The world has so many wonderful options. There's so many ways to earn a living. I think just getting fixated on one thing to the exclusion of everything else can be pretty limiting. You might have a an amazing career as, you know, the world's best teacher and you've totally missed out on it because you wanted to be the next Daniel Day-Lewis and luck just never came came in for you. Your ship never came in. Lightning never struck whatever metaphor you want to use. But yeah, I don't think you should be closed off to all of their possibilities. Agreed. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in today. Uh, Stick with us in a few weeks. Maybe we'll find a Rosie Perez episode number three to bring into the fold. (laughs) We'll do our best. No promises. No promises. Thanks everyone. Catch you guys next time.